Former LAPD SWAT officer Rick Massa talks about responding to the North Hollywood Bank shootout. We're traveling at a high rate of speed, bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic, going our, our 18 miles from the academy to, to the bank. And our sergeant gets on the air and he says, the shooting is at a Bank of America. It, these are the suspects we were looking for. They're heavily armed. They have body armor on. And the one thing that he said that I'll always remember, and that's as, as police officers, we don't like to hear we don't like to hear that there's an officer down. I don't care if it's a motor officer that dropped his bike or, or what it is. We don't like hearing about a, a motor officer down or an off-duty officer that gets in an accident or, or anything like that. And he put out that these are, these are the officers, these are the bad guys that we're looking for, and there are five to seven officers down. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Well, everybody, this is going to be epic, awesome, and if there's anything that ever said evil is coming and playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, Game of Crimes, this is going to be it. And I am the host of the Biggest, Baddest podcast on the internet, Morgan Wright, here with my co-host, Steve Murphy, but you could call me Murph. You were confused there for a second. Like, <laughs> it's well, been a long day, man. <laughs> I'm in Florida. Who am I now? Well, you get down here and it's nice weather outside and you got to get out and work. And, you know, my wife, I can't believe she expects me to go outside and do something around here. Like, I know. Oh, How I'm terrible. I'm retired. So don't you know who I am? She's like, yeah, hey, Mr. Mahogany, take, <laughs> take the trash out. Take the trash out. What have you done lately, huh? <laughs> That's right. That's go right. take the trash out. Hey, before we do get started, though, let me just do a little bit of housekeeping because we want to keep this pretty tight because we got a lot to get to. This is going to be epic. This is going to be awesome. So just real quick, hey, head on over to Apple Reviews or whatever platform you're on. Look at it and think about just giving us five stars this holiday season. Find it in your heart to give us five stars so that others may discover the joy, the fun, that is, game of crimes. Not right, that we're Murph? begging, but it'd be great. That would, you know, that would be a nice Christmas present. It would. And remember, this is part of our Tell One, Share One campaign. Tell one person about Game of Crimes, share one episode with them that you love, and give them the gift of Game of Crimes. There you go. This holiday season for only $19.95. That's right. <laughs> also, head on over to our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com, for everything about our merch, anything we got going on, join our live events. But it's about the pictures. The pictures we posted from this, the pictures we posted from Alex Collins last week. They're all going to be there. So you got to go over there. Follow us on the social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But Steve, people got to be on Patreon. We got a good one. In fact, we're just talking about this. We are reviewing The Big Lebowski because it is a crime related movie. It is one of the Coen Brothers movies. And this is going to be fun. This is the first time you've ever watched it. Oh, my gosh. I almost threw up. But let's save that for Patreon. We'll save that for Patreon. That's right. That's where you need to be. So come on over, Game of Crimes. So patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have got, like, I think over 45 pieces of content now published. We've got live reviews. We've got live streams. We've got reviews of some of the top movies. We've got our case of the month. We've got a 12-part episode, which we're coming up on episode nine now with uh, the real DEA narcos talking about the real DEA narcos and the real hunt for Pablo Escobar. By the way, you know, um, I'm going to give it away, you know. He's dead. 
<laughs> spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Pablo's dead. Room temperature. Hey, you know, you know the cool thing about that though is Javier's wife, Beverly, has has been to a bunch of our shows around the world. She's never heard the the entire this 12 part series that we're posting out there. And so that's why, you know, you we gave them the uh, the Patreon link to get in. So she's really listening to all this stuff to find out, you know, all the true secrets. Find out what Javier, Javier really did. <laughs> Just skip the part about the sex life, honey. Oh, she knows that part. <laughs> she knows that part. All right. Hey, and if you're feeling especially generous this holiday season, just hit paypal.com. Use our email, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash gameofcrimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show. Now, quick disclaimer. This is a show about crime. It really is. We talk about bad thing. We blah, we talk about bad people doing bad things to. <laughs> I can't even get this right. Okay, I'm not yeah. going to edit this. Whatever. <laughs> we talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. Right. As you can see, we take the stories seriously, but we never take ourselves serious, and that's what makes this so much fun. You know, I, and we we get serious when we have to. And you know what else makes it fun? What? It's time for. Small, Small Town Police Blotters. You're too slow. You've been in Florida too long. You're way too slow. Turtle. Come I'm on a now. turtle. Speaking of being slow, you're going to like this one. This one <laughs> comes to us from Maria Lawson or Mariah Lawson okay. uh, through our Game of Crimes podcast Gmail, which we gave you just a little bit earlier. And Steve, you know, we anytime you see a headline, it talks about man arrested after high speed chase, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this guy was arrested after a slow speed chase on a backhoe. <laughs> comes out. And this is true. Aloha, Oregon. Aloha, Oregon, Clackamas County. Deputies characterized as a slow-speed joyride on a stolen backhoe that spanned nearly 30 miles just after Sunday morning. A trooper spotted the backhoe, and guess what? When he turned around to go up to it, the thing went up the off-ramp of the interstate, lost it. Deputy spotted it just after 1 a.m. driving, straddling the double yellow line and driving on the wrong side of the road. The backhoe was traveling at speeds estimated of 10 to 20 miles. Hell, you could have just <laughs> run up there and said, hey, dude, pull over, you know? <laughs> you put the bike now, cops on him. Oh, yeah, man. But when the deputy stopped the backhoe, the driver initially told officers he was lost before admitting he stole it. Now, this dude had his license already revoked from a previous felony. He's facing multiple charges, including unauthorized use of a vehicle, driving while suspended. But for this, Steve, they set his bail at $50,000. Hell, you wow. can't even get that in L.A. County, which you're going to find <laughs> out here in one of our episodes. It's sight and release. Oh, my gosh. But, you know, think about it. How do you stop a backhoe if you're in a cruiser? Yeah, it's kind of hard to stop. <laughs> yeah, you just got to say, pretty please pull over or yeah. go till they run out of gas. But Steve, you remember the old uh, comedian Rodney Dangerfield who always oh, yeah. said, no respect? I get no respect. I got no respect. Well, here's somebody that didn't get any respect. This comes to us, don't know where, but it's in the 600 block of Egret Circle, February 18th, 1241 a.m. A security car, a security guard pulled his golf cart up to the pool area to investigate a report of children fighting. The children stole his golf cart and fled the area. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, man, I'm so sorry. No respect, I tell you. No respect. Oh, my gosh. That's, I'm just not going to say anything. This next one is the reason personal protective equipment was created, and it's not for the reason you think. Mm-mm. This comes to us from somewhere in Ohio. But a 38-year-old Cole Avenue man man reported that his home was invaded on September 9th. Not broken into, but invaded. The man said he was sitting home alone, masturbating, and watching a pornographic movie. When a man came down into the basement, holding a gun, and started to videotape him, the man said that before he left, the intruder fed his dog some mushrooms, and the dog died. 
Oh. What's it that? Why'd you do that to the dog? Feed him to the weirdo that's sitting in the oh basement by himself. God. Good Lord. There I was sitting in the basement, oh, pleasuring no. myself when somebody broke in. I, I, Imagine uh, collecting the evidence on that one. Man, you. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if, well. <laughs> on videotape, I wonder if he got there. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, talk about All right, shrinkage. so, Steve, now let's see if you're going to actually break the streak. I just, you know, we just, right before we recorded this, unfortunately, because I don't like Michigan, they just, they beat Ohio State. So they stopped, stopped the streak. Let's see if you can stop the streak. Let's see if you have a Michigan moment here, Steve. Okay, okay. What year was it? Here it comes we go. to us from the Simpson Leader Times out of Catanning, Pennsylvania. It happened on June 17th. You just have to figure out what year. So Clumsy Thief and Skylights is among today's news quirks. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this actually comes out to us out of Spencer, North Carolina. A couple quick things. The chief there said Thursday a burglar dropped a dollar bill when he left the Spencer Steel Company empty-handed Wednesday night. He said the bill could be claimed at the police station, right, if you fall for that one. But, Steve, this is the neat one. Strange sightings coming to us from Elwood City, Pennsylvania. Police were swamped with telephone calls Thursday night about mysterious flashes of light in the sky. The worried callers were put at ease when police investigated and found that several teenagers had floated 15 balloons into the sky filled with natural gas attached to lighted railroad flares. The flares ignited the gas, causing the balloons to burst in white flashes. Police said the explosions were sighted about two miles away. Actually, that's pretty cool. Yeah, well, you were on the railroad. I mean, they probably you probably got you probably did this too when you were bored at night. You know, hey, let me tie a balloon with some natural gas and blow that shit up. I wish I thought of that. It'd be more exciting than what I was doing. Believe me, more exciting. All right, Steve. <laughs> so, what year was it? June seventeenth, nineteen fifty-six, nineteen forty-six, or nineteen sixty-six? I'm going to say fifty-six because that was an excellent year. That was the year that Murph was born. Well, then you are now. Unfortunately, not Michigan today. You are Ohio State, and you lost. <laughs> I don't care. It's still a good year. 1966, June 17th, 1966. Oh, that was probably a bunch of hippies out there in 1966. Thus, into the reading for today. Kyrie, Domine, Dana, Ace, Requiem. All right. <laughs> well, now that we know that you're Owen, you know, or that you're three and 97, I think, yeah. is where you are. Hey, but, you know, to our, to our listeners, thanks for sending these in. This this stuff is fun. Oh, this is fun the stuff. Small town police spotter. It's unbelievable. Keep Keep sending us stuff, man. We'll keep recognizing you. Hey, so Steve, yeah, you know, so as you see, we're kind of keeping this pretty tight Yep. because we have four hours that we sat and talked with Rick Massa, former LAPD SWAT officer, the guy, when you watch the videos and you see the thing about the North Hollywood Bank shootout, this is the guy that was laying on the ground when the three SWAT officers came up. You talk about balls of steel, man. I'm telling you, buns of steel, these sons of bitches had balls of steel and... Uh, yeah, you know, I, mean, I don't know what to say. Well, I'm sure if you're old enough to remember this, and I think most of our listeners are, this was the big shootout at the Bank of America out there. That you know the bad guys were all suited up in Kevlar. The cops were outgunned. They were they had their just their regular service weapons out. You know, back then they weren't allowed to carry rifles out on the street, things like that. Only SWAT could do that. Uh, and these guys took advantage of the situation. Had already killed several people. But then if you remember, I, I'm sure you remember seeing the videos I did when we first found out about Rick. I remember those videos and seeing those three guys going face to face almost. They're like a car length and a half away from one of the bad guys and an, a, a long 
drawn out shootout that lasts what two and a half three minutes just that part of the shootout this was a 45 minute shootout but they're face to face with this guy and these are the guys rick is one of the guys one of the three absolutely so hey but but you know what this is going to be an awesome story and this really tells you i mean when you start seeing and when you hear his story about why he did what he did and what they were doing folks i mean this just gives you a whole different perspective and so hey you know what we ought to do is by the way, this was probably our most requested episode. People said, hey, can you get can you get somebody from this? Well, guess what, folks? We did. We got them, and you're about to hear it. And the only way you're going to hear it is for us to say, Murph, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the game of crimes? Everybody, you know what I'm going to say, and this is true. Get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Bring on Rick Mazza. You know, Murph, when you say at the end of, uh, when we do the intros, when you say sit down, shut up, strap in, and, you know, hold on, basically, hold on to your nards, you know, this mm-hmm. is going to be, I'm telling you, this one, the guy we have on, next to Michael Neal and the 17 seconds of hell, you know, the shootout with the two West Memphis police officers, this yep. is the most intense story you guys are going to hear, and I think to hear it, you think maybe we ought to introduce the guy, Murph, or should we just leave him in? Leave everybody in the dark here. (laughs) You know, and you're right, Morgan. As we were researching this, I've been watching videos this morning, and I got so ramped up, my heart breaks. I'm sweating. I'm like, holy cow. And this happened almost 25 years ago. I I still get goosebumps because I remember seeing it on the news. And so, look, folks, let's 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 not delay it anymore. Not only is this guy a cop... He is a cook, and we're going to talk about that towards the end. But hey, guys, everybody, welcome. Former LAPD SWAT officer and one of the three officers involved in the biggest shootout. Well, I say one of three officers, a lot of them, but the one that made the TV, the three SWAT officers showing up in the car, Rick Massa. Rick. Go Irish, right, Rick? Hello. How are you? Don't know. Podcast's not over yet. Could change. But anyway, (laughs) the one thing we have established is Rick is a big Irish fan. We're excited Go to have Irish. you here, except for, except for the Notre Dame thing. Go Mountaineers. <laughs> yeah, Mountaineers. <laughs> well, Rick, we'll get man, around this, this is a high honor, knowing it really is, too, because, um, you know, we have talked to a lot of people that have done a lot of just awesome stuff, and I just when I think it can't get any more awesomer, you know, if that's a word, you know, raise the bar. It is now. <laughs> We get a story like yours, and everybody knows this story. Or, you know what? I say everybody thinks they know this story, right, Rick? So you have briefed this so many times. This is probably old school to you, but we want to. But what we want to do that's different than your other briefings, we want to start learning a little bit about you. So let's, let us take you back, not back when you were in diapers and stuff, but let's talk about what the hell possessed you to become a cop. We're, we're talking about taking me back to dinosaur days, right? yeah maybe yeah patrol cars on your feet so when i was in in high school and then going on to college uh my profession was going to be architecture yeah i love to draw and that's where i was headed i even got a job with a local architect a rather big architect and i came to realize that there was no excitement in it and i was looking for excitement and I was a big fan of Police Story, Adam 12, uh, different uh, cop shows, and decided that uh, I was going to give it a try. I wanted the excitement. I wanted to be able to help the public. And another thing that it would be nice to have a 
payday every two weeks and not have to worry about <laughs> clients not paying for the jobs that you do, which, which happened often with the architect I was working for. So I looked into LAPD, and uh, at the time, LAPD was the uh, best department to go to. How do you know? Well, the, the two big departments locally here was LA County Sheriff's and LAPD. And I decided to, to go with LAPD just because, um, because of the It was the Jack Webb. It was Dragnet, wasn't it? It was Malloy and Reed. That's what got you there going. You go. Malloy, Reed, Dragnet, uh, Police Story. I watched them all. Joe Friday. Didn't we all, yeah. man? Well, you know, some of our listeners are too young to remember that, but man, those were oh, great yeah. shows. Just the facts, ma'am. I mean, just what, I mean, but you know what that was, he, what he did was he created such a legend. It's, it's the stuff of, you know, legend and lore, the way he portrayed LAPD. And I think that got a lot of people interested in it, but what was, so when you watched it on TV, you actually grew up in Los Angeles. Did you, when they were showing the show, like One Adam 12, did you, do you know some of those areas when you saw them filming it? You go, oh yeah, I know that's this and oh, that's yeah. that. The, they were filming a lot in, uh, in the area in North Hollywood, uh, in the area where I grew up. I was born and raised in the Valley. And uh, keep in mind when I say the Valley, we're talking about a sub that's part of Los Angeles, but it's a suburb of Los Angeles. And North Hollywood is a community within Los Angeles. And that's, that's where they were predominantly filmed was uh, was in that area what division was that rampart division that they were supposed to be operating out of yes they they the show they uh they always the station that they always showed that yeah. was rampart but the areas that they were filming was that the actual rampart station yeah that was the actual at that time rampart station uh it's kind of ironic that now that station is still there, and it's a Metropolitan Station. It's Metropolitan Division, my old division. Which we're going to get into talking about. So that's cool. So what, um, where, where were you going to college at then, or what did you do after high school then? Go to college to do the architecture stuff? I went to college, local, local college, uh, uh, Los Angeles Pierce uh, Junior College. I went there, took all their architecture classes, and that was about the time you know, I graduated there. But that was about the same time um, that I decided that uh, I wanted to get in law enforcement. So tell us about your path getting into it. I mean, did you know anybody on LAPD? Uh, you know, you, you, you applied. How, how does, back then, when did, first of all, when did you join and how did that process work? Well, I started the process in 1970. And I went and took, uh, filled out an application, went and took an oral interview, um, was, uh, got all my paperwork in w without my mom even knowing about it because I was still living at home being 20 years old. And when I finally passed everything and I was given an academy date, I wound up telling her and I was figuring she was going to be not too happy. But then she kind of made the comment that um, if you don't get through the academy, I'll kill you. <laughs> and so it's like, and I, and, and we started off, we went to, I'll never forget, we went to Zero Dark 30 up at the Legion Park uh, Police Academy that was uh, across from Dodger Stadium. Uh, There's about 104 of us in the class. And I was the smallest guy there. 
<laughs> now you got like, something to prove. And I tell you what, throughout that whole time that I was there, I kept, I'd shake my head going, what am I doing? Well, when you say you're the smallest guy, how big are you? <laughs> I'm 5'8", and I probably shrunk. 5'8", and 150 <laughs> pounds. So were you, were you like athletic before that? I mean, did you like play baseball or anything like that? Yeah, no, I, I played uh, high school football, and um, I wasn't, I didn't become a well, runner until later. Were you the football? Were they kicking you through the goalposts at yes. being that small? It's kind of it's, <laughs> it's hilarious that uh, at one point in my career, uh, they were thinking, jokingly, they were thinking, SWAT was thinking that maybe we could use him as an entry tool and just insert him through a mailbox. <laughs> nice, nice. And I, of course, I was like, no. No. Yeah. I'd, no. Hurt my head, Cops, I'd hurt my head going through the, uh, through the mail slot. Cops have the worst sense of humor in the world, I the know. sickest anyway. <laughs> so you were all of 5'8", 150 pounds, the, which is actually, you, you think about it, at 5'8", being the smallest guy in an academy, that says a lot. I mean, it's, it means, were they, you know, when I got on the patrol, uh, this is 1984, man, you're already 14 years in when I, uh, I was started on the police department in 82, the patrol in 84, but up until that time, it seemed like every state trooper you ran into was at least six foot tall and 180 pounds. Were they going for a certain height kind of thing or certain, you know, look when they were recruiting back then? I don't know. You know what? I, that, I, I don't know. That was hard to say. I, in my career in SWAT, I once had somebody make the comment, not in SWAT, but somebody else, Jeff, you don't fit the mold of a SWAT cop. And I always said, well, what's the mold? I, I don't know what the mold is. I didn't get and the memo. they said the mold would be a, a big husky guy that, you know. No neck, all and shoulders and arms and, yeah. And in, in actually, in retrospect, it would be the exact opposite. They'd want somebody a little bit smaller, a little bit leaner. I was the one in our team, because of my size, that uh, I was always the one that would go under the house looking for somebody. I was always the one going up in the attic looking for somebody because I was easy to put up there, and I was small <laughs> to get in through the through the uh, the crawl holes. As long as it wasn't the mail slot, yeah. I was a tunnel rat. Exactly. I was going to say you were the tunnel rat from the Vietnam War era. Oh man. And I had no problem with that. I had no problem with it. That's interesting, too, because the, 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 the war was going on, the draft was going on at that time. What were the conditions like when you got on? What was the general mood in L.A., you know, and around that area? What, what you know, kind of give us just a brief thumbnail description of, uh, if I'm a tourist, what would L.A. be like in the 1970s there, you know, when you first got on? Well, I noticed that uh, it's so different than now that when I first got on, uh, law enforcement was highly respected. And um, I, I don't feel that that's the same atmosphere as it is today. When I got on, uh, Vietnam War was going. Uh, I, I actually entered the uh, LAPD Police Academy in uh, January uh, 1971. Um, that was the first year that they were going to do the, uh, the draft, uh, the lottery. And my number came up. Uh, about 150, 151. Pretty far through, down. They, they passed mine. I had applied for an occupational deferment because I was on the police department. I was in the academy. And then I decided that I wanted to join um, a reserve. I figured, okay, I'll join a reserve. I'll do my 
whatever, how many months, year, whatever it is for the reserves, and I won't lose too much time in the academy. I'd have to come back and redo it. And I actually went to all the four of the uh, five of the military recruiters, and they pretty much laughed at me because I'm 21. They were taking 18, 19, 20-year-olds uh, first. And they said, you have to wait in line. And as it turns out, the occupational deferment was approved, and I wound up staying with, uh, with LAPD. I always look back to this day that I have that one little thing in my life that, that wasn't fulfilled because I was never in the military. And then I have people that turn around and said, man, you've done, and I'm still in law enforcement, you've done 49 years in law enforcement to this day. And they said, you know, that, that's, a, that's enough. Most military careers aren't that long. My dad was military. I was in the reserves. Uh, if you had joined, what, was, what branch would you have joined? Well, I went to Marine Corps first, and then from there I went to Army, I went to Air Force, I went to uh, um, Navy, I went to Coast Guard. I went to all of them. But what branch, if you could have had your choice? I went, I went to the Marine, Marine Corps first, just because, it's, because it is like a, a police department. It's well-structured, not to say they're not all well-structured. I'm sure they're all well-structured. But they're, they're that one notch a little bit ahead of the, and I hate to say this, but of the gung-ho, um, first in, uh, get it done, uh, they're that one little extra. You'll find excitement there in the Marine Corps, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, so um, you started off with 104 in your academy class. Uh, how many graduated? 75. Wow. We lost, there's 74. We lost uh, about 25%. What was the main reason for dropping out? Guys couldn't do it. They, they couldn't, uh, what, what the police academy does, and, and I have to agree with it, they try to get you to quit while you're in the academy. Because if you're going to quit in a training mode or a training atmosphere, I should say, then what are you going to do on the street when, when your life's on the line or when somebody else's life is on the line? Uh, a member of the public, uh, another police officer. What are you going to do then? And so they try to get you to quit. And, and obviously 25% did. Any women in your class? Not at that time. Were there any women police officers at that time at LAPD? There were, but there were none that were field trained. Okay. Yeah, because I remember, again, watching Dragnet and stuff. You always see them I in was the, just going to say that. The police, <laughs> you know, the, the skirts and everything, and it's just like... Yeah, no, I was going to say that. Yep. Different times. Well, but you know, that's what it is. People look back and they say, well, that wasn't nice. Guys... If you had known what they had done 100 years before that, or, you know, in 200 years before that, look, it's, it's all what we're talking about is what's contextual for the time, what was relevant, you know, and what were things done. Are there a lot more women in law enforcement now? Yeah, sure. Oh, yes. Attitudes oh, yeah. have changed, right? But back then, you know, when I got on, uh, the, like, say, the State Patrol in 84, the Highway Patrol had been around for 50 years. Only the, we had only the third female ever hired in the 50-year history of the Highway Patrol in my academy class. Now, you know, there's obviously a lot more. So I think, but, mm -hmm. but, you know, but the other thing too, back then too, um, and I know one of your partners, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but you started having the Sibonese Liberation Army. You started having some of the protests, a lot of things that people forget some of the activity, you know, that happened later. Let, let's save that. But I just kind of want to put a placeholder for folks to think about that later. Let's go back to your uh, academy and stuff. So how long was your academy? My academy was five months. We had one month of uh, training in the academy. 
Um, we went to uh, second month was weekends out. So you were four, four days at the academy. And then the fifth day or was either a Friday or Saturday where you went out in the field. Third month was all completely out in the field. Uh, fourth month you came back in and fifth month was uh, just getting you ready to go permanent out in the field. What was the best thing you liked about the academy? Oh, wow. Getting out? I, I never thought about that. Um, <laughs> getting out of the academy? That's <laughs> yeah, the best leaving. thing for me. <laughs> Actually, I, I enjoyed it because I, ex I expected it to be like that. That's what I, it was everything I expected it to be. I expected it to be tough. I expect, I didn't go in with the idea that, hey, this is going to be a pushover, especially, you know, um, being the, the small guy. And when we started doing wrestling in uh, PT, you know, I was never a college wrestler. So the first month in PT, we're doing college wrestling and the guy they teamed me up against was uh, about my size but he was a state champion in college wrestling. <laughs> and so he kind of like made me a pretzel within uh, three seconds. Mm -hmm. It was crazy. Yeah. Oh, my. my to, to, to my benefit is that in the third month, no, second month, when we went to combat wrestling, well, then I could do whatever I wanted. I could choke out. I could just, you know twist the guy's head, poke my fingers in his eyes, do whatever I wanted. Oh, World Wrestling Federation. Wrestling. Good old <laughs> professional so, wrestling. So all the rules, all the rules were out the door at that point. Well, look, and quite frankly, too, look, if, if you ever get into, you know, all of us have been in those struggles, too, where you're arresting somebody. If it gets down to it, there are no rules when you're trying to survive. And so... Yeah, and that's what they do. That's what they try to, try to they teach you on how to survive in the street. The rule is you win. That's it. The mean streets of Los Angeles, there's a million stories in the naked city. I thought that's what they always used to jack, jack <laughs> with, used to say. <laughs> Were you really naked, though, in the city? Was there any nakedness? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. No. That's probably a whole other story, though. Yeah. Oh, there'd be plenty of stories. <laughs> Los Angeles is like Florida. You know, there's always something strange going on. There's, so, something, there's something always that digs up somewhere. So let's reverse this now or flip this around. What was the worst thing about the Academy for you? Well, when you graduate from police academy, when I was going through, you were pretty much a lawyer because the amount of law, the first month they put us through nothing but law, physical training, um, and you, you have a much better awareness and knowledge of what the law is. And I was probably pretty much overwhelmed with the amount of of work we had to do. I mean, it was up early in the morning, out late in the afternoon, uh, the physical fitness aspect, and then right back at it early in the morning. And we started at, I want to say about five, six o'clock in the morning. And we went to, uh, we went to late in the afternoon. They had a lot to try to cram in you guys. Yeah. Well, they do. Now the, they've gone to a six month academy. They've gone to longer academies. I don't know what it, where it's at right now today. I do know that a few years ago, they got to a kinder, gentler academy to where uh, <laughs> they wouldn't yell at the recruits. Oh. Um, yeah, no, they did. Yeah, because nobody ever yells at you on the street. You know, what, what I was told once going through the academy that, that if they're not yelling at you, they don't care about you. And, and there's a lot of truth to that. Just prior, to, uh, just prior to going into the police academy, I 
decided to take a job as what was called a police, not an explorer, but a student worker. And a police student worker was somebody that was hired by LAPD, by the city, and you would go into a police de department, into a, not department, but a, um, a station, and you would do clerical work. I, you could be crime, crime map pinning where the crimes were on a pin map, uh, researching uh, uh, street crimes so that they can get some type of a pattern. You'd be going through all the police reports. I did that for about nine months, uh, pretty much uh, all of 1970. And I did it so that I could get a better understanding of the insides of police department and the inside of police work. Everybody, when we look at the police department, we look at police officers, we don't realize what the background is that goes into that. Not only the training, but the researching of where crimes are happening, the, the, um, all of that that goes into, into the, um, the backgrounds. So where'd you work at so, when you were doing this? What station Hollywood. were you at? Hollywood? Hollywood, yeah. And uh, I eventually, as a police officer, went back to Hollywood. But I got to know some of the people in Hollywood, and as it turns out, uh, they wound up being up at the academy as instructors. And uh, I knew a couple of them, which... They probably didn't cut you any slack, did they? I bet they didn't. Yes, not in a bad way. <laughs> no, not in a bad way. They'd point their finger at me and they'd say, Rick, hey, you don't have to do this. Everybody else does. And they do that so that the class then starts to hate you. <laughs> Tried and true tactic with drill sergeants. Everybody, guess what? Murphy doesn't have to do it, but because of Murph, you all get to do push-ups. We're going to push the ground yeah, away for the next exactly 30 minutes. The, that's that's right. the mentality that they had to try and sway other, uh, other academy uh, members, other recruits. So when you got done with your uh, training, did you were, uh, but you still had to do some FTO work, right? Field training stuff when you got out of the academy? Correct. So how does that go? So you graduate, you get your badge pinned on, 74 of you guys. Uh, who was the chief at that time? Who, who, who was the chief when you graduated? That was um, Davis. And I re if I remember right, too, the Parker Center is named after Chief Parker, right? Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of history there. I've been down to one police plaza and uh, Parker Center and stuff for meetings before. Just, you know, great, great areas and stuff down there. So you graduate. What's your, how do they determine who is going to be your FTO? Well, even in the academy, the way that they work it, they take a look at who had military background and they would make them squad leaders in the academy. Now you graduate and you go to pretty much a division or uh, an area, some back east, they call them precincts. You go into an area uh, or a police division and that, that's really up to that division. There are some divisions, like when I went to, I was assigned to Van Eyes. They don't want to put you in a division where you live. At the time, I lived in North Hollywood. So they put me in Van Eyes Division, which is right next to it, right next to, uh, to North Hollywood. So some of the divisions, as it was with Van Eyes, is they had a training division. I mean, they had a training watch. So on that training watch, I was working from 6 at night to... Four and, uh, two in the morning. That was their, the training watch. And then they would rotate you through. That time of day, everything's, you're getting every, probably every kind of call you could get. Your crime's up, your activity is up, 
sure, everything is, uh, goes up at night and through the early morning hours. Yeah, it's a tactical shift. Did you get any say-so, or did you get uh, an opportunity to request which division you wanted to be assigned to? Not at that time, no. Well, wait, let me back up. They would... No, I don't think so. I think that was their choice. Yeah, so you're just not going back to your home division. No, you know what? I, I take that back. Come to think of it, you put down three. You can put down three uh, divisions you wanted to go to. So your wish and list. I think I put down... I th yeah, wish list. I put down... Um, I don't think Van Nuys was here. I put down Hollywood. I know I put down North Hollywood. And uh, maybe I did Van Nuys. Maybe I put that down. That's why I went yeah. there. In, in the knew? infinite wisdom, sometimes they move people around. You look at it later, years later, and you go, that made like, no why sense. Why am I here? Yeah, why, why am I here? What they would do is you would do uh, one year, or actually it would be the C5. It would be uh, about seven months of uh, being on uh, probation that would complete your one year. You had one year probation from the minute, from the day you walked into the police academy to the day one year later would be your uh, probation. So now they do it a year after you graduate. Ah, oh, extend the time. So from the time you got out into the field and I was going to ask you, too, if you remember who your first FTO was. From the time you got out into the field, how long was your actual training before they cut you loose? Uh, or or did you, were you guys two-man cars back then? Did everybody ride uh, two-man cars? No. Well, everybody on, uh, if you had a training officer, if you were on pr probation, then you had a training officer. At Van Nuys, if you weren't a probationer and you weren't a training officer, you worked by yourself. And I worked, uh, I worked graveyards, uh, 11 at night till 8 in the morning, um, as, by myself when I came off probation. How long, oh, so you had to ride with somebody until your probation was over? Correct. So you had a year before you were actually cut loose and on your own? Correct. So yep. what was it like that first night, you're turned loose, Rick Massanow, all five, 850 pounds of you, you big stud? And they turn you loose, and you're riding by yourself. What what kind of feeling was that? Riding by myself. The, I after, mean, driving after you know, by yourself. Yeah, after probation's over, you're you're now a one man car. You're out there working the you know midnight shift. You just have to keep from the, the number one thing that they instill in you is remember where you're at, know the street you're on, because if something happens, you you got to know where you're at to put out a help call. And so you were very aware of when you turn down a street, you're looking, you're, you always know where your, uh, your backups are. Um, that was a long time ago. Do you remember what your first call sign was? Don't say one out of 12. We're all just going to shit. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That's what I was no. waiting for. Van Nuys is nine. Van Nuys is their nine. So it was when I was first out there, we weren't on an Adam car. We were on an X car. An X car just means an extra car. So I was nine X I think it was 9X53 uh, uh, when I was going through training. And then when I came off at of training, I mean, I even saw a lot when I was going through training. Van Nuys was a, was a good division to work. Um, then I went to, it's kind of like, it's kind of like you have to know how to do things. Stop the drunk driver. And before you, put him under arrest or go to handcuff him, you have your backup coming because if they, you go uh, Fist City with this guy, 
you're there by yourself and him. And I can remember I requested a backup on one and I had the tow truck get there before the backup did and this guy wasn't going to go to jail. So the, we started going around and around and the tow truck uh, driver helped me out. <laughs> so yeah, so you, you got to know when, when and where to do things. Now, at that time though, you guys didn't have any portable radios, right? Everything was just uh, in-car radio or did you have any handhelds Correct. at that time? No, no handhelds. Yeah. See, that's the toughest part too, is that you got to do, you know, once you get out of that car, it's like, if you don't give all the instructions, the information you need, and you like, say you get into it with somebody, you got to rest somebody. There's no going, Hey, time out guys. Just a second. I got to run back to my car, call this in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. You got to know exactly when you're going to do it and, and, uh, and where your backup is. That's, you know, it's a learning process, but it's a tough way to learn too. Cause you're, otherwise you're by yourself. At the time that you got cut loose, you're now working Van Nuys Division. When did LAPD actually, because LAPD is credited for basically creating the first SWAT team, right? Yes. Do you, when, do you remember when that happened? Was that, was that right about the time you came on, or was that afterwards? No, it was actually before that. Before? before it was about in the late, mid to late 60s. I came on in 71, went through the police academy uh, January 25th. Uh, was the student worker in the mid-70s, and a very good friend of mine who has since passed away, Daryl Gates, who, um, oh, yeah. who actually started Chief who Gates, actually yeah. started SWAT. He was a good friend of mine. He's very well known, too. Pretty much. Probably, I think, arguably, people will tell you that he was uh, the last good chief that LAPD has had. And I have to agree with it. Well, you say that now because you no longer work for LAPD and you don't have to worry about them stopping your checks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they can stop my pension check, I guess. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Just it's uh, you know, no. it's First Amendment stuff. It's great being a civil. Well, you're not technically a civilian, but well, it's now see, I don't want to, I don't want to get away from what we're talking about. But you take a look at it now, and it's a political position. When Daryl Gates right. was there, it wasn't a political. It was position. a cop position. He could say and do whatever he wanted. He told the, the press and the, the, um, exactly what he felt. You can't do that now because the chief of police is appointed by the mayor. Yeah. So he's not going to tell his boss to go pound sand when that's the guy that pretty much writes your check. Right. You know, and that's, you're right. That is, I think it's relevant though, because it really gets into a lot of the attitudes now about policing, you know, and the way that you guys had to adapt, you know, to your work, you go from chiefs being chiefs, uh, to chiefs being politicians, uh, right. you know, and it, it changes the complexities and the complexion of how you respond to things. Um, let, let's talk about SWAT for a second. When you first got on, what did you know about SWAT at LAPD? What was your view of them? What, you know, when you saw them, what did you think? SWAT was the furthest unit in my mind that I would ever go to. No prior military experience. At that time, they were looking for prior military experience. SWAT started as a result of the 1965 Watts riots. And at that time, there were groups that were shooting at, at the uh, firemen trying to put fires out as a result of the riots. And LAPD at that time did not have any type of a counter, counter sniper team or any kind of a team to be able to, to deal with that. And so Daryl Gates came up with it, the idea of, and, and 
I asked him about this and he, he agreed. That's exactly what he wanted. He actually wanted to call the unit special weapons attack team. And he sent, he was a, at that time, the, uh, his position was a, a commander. And so he sent that up the, up the chain of command and they liked the idea, but they didn't like the name. <laughs> so the name was changed from attack. Cause that sounded, you know, kind of bad. Uh, and that came back down as special weapons and tactics. Well, see, cops are not good marketers because you're like, uh, I'm, right. I'm part of the fuck you up club. No, 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 no. We're kinder, <laughs> gentler. No, no, no. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're nice and gentle, but yeah, special. So there's, there's a piece of history I did not know. And normally I kind of pride myself on knowing some of the, uh, trivia as Steve gets bored. Well, by. I asked Daryl that I asked, I asked him that I said, people are asking me to ask you, was that your first idea? And he started to laugh. He goes, yeah, Rick, he goes, special weapons attack team. I thought it was good, but, uh, apparently it didn't go over too well with the, uh, with the brass at that time, back prior to 71, he was the, the rank of commander came in after, uh, 1971, he was an inspector. Oh, kind That's of the old the New York style. Was. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was an inspector, which eventually turned into the, the, uh, rank of commander. You know who else was an inspector change. about that same time? Harry no. Callahan up in San Francisco. Dirty Harry. <laughs> really? <laughs> really? Clint Eastwood. Inspector Callahan. I don't know if he had that rank though. No, he was Inspector he that, Callahan. Uh, but I think their inspectors were more like detectives as opposed to like, I think the That's rank. That's what I mean. Yeah. I don't think he had the rank of a commander. Hey, did you ever meet Dirty Harry? The real Dirty Harry? Clint Eastwood? No. Um, I've seen him. I've used to work a lot of movie jobs. I've seen him around. Uh, he's, he's a really super nice guy from what I've understood. What I understand. Well, we'll, we'll say some of those stories for later, because otherwise, man, we'll, we'll get diver We'll be talking about all this other stuff. <laughs> we'll be in a rabbit hole here in about two seconds. Oh, we will. So I know because yeah, you got so much stuff there. Well, and that's the challenge too. So you said SWAT was the furthest thing from your mind. So kind of work us through uh, the progression. You started on the street, just patrol division, Van Nuys. How did things go for you after that? I started on the street. Uh, it came to a point at in time where I was going to have to either transfer. Or the department, you're, you're in a division for so long when you first come on to where, or they transfer you themselves. Why? And Why transfer I wanted you? to, well, they, that's with all recruits. What they do is they leave you in a division for a year, a little over a year. And then at that time, they didn't have Department of Transportation, DOT, the parking checkers. They didn't have civilian jailers. They didn't have very many dispatchers. So those three positions, that being a parking checker was a police officer. Um, dispatchers were police officers and, uh, jailers were police officers, uh, sworn police officers. So they would transfer somebody that just coming right off probation into those spots. And that would be your, your position for the next uh, minimum of six months to a year. But I had a sergeant at Van Nuys tell me, he goes, he said, wheel yourself, transfer yourself. Don't let the department do it for you because you'll wind up in one of those three spots. So about a month before I was up to go on the wheel to be transferred, I requested a transfer and I requested a transfer to Hollywood, Wilshire, uh, Hollywood division, Wilshire division, or West LA, something over the hill. 
from the Valley, San Fernando Valley. And how close did that make it to home for you then where you were living at the time? Does that still make it relatively close? Yeah, it did because North Hollywood is where I was living. I just drove over the hill to, to Hollywood and that's where I went. I went to Hollywood and it was a, it was a great division. Uh, I still consider it a, a, a home because that was the only, as it turns out in my career, that is the only division other than Van Nuys that I had worked that was actually, I could say, was a division that was mine. Once you get in the Metropolitan Division, we can talk about that later if you want, but once you get in the Metropolitan Division, Metropolitan Division is a task force division that doesn't have a home to call its own. You're over the whole city. So it felt kind of, it felt kind of nice. I went into Hollywood. I did uh, work patrol for uh, first, uh, first year, two years. Worked, uh, went into accident investigation for the next three years. And then I went into, uh, into Vice. And I worked undercover vice. I was going to say, as somebody, myself, who used to work a lot of accidents, that that you, you, did, you were wondering, when was that architectural training going to come into play? And now it's now you've found a reason oh. to use your architectural skills to draw those nice accident you, diagrams. You, you, have to, you have to ask me that later, too, because when they found out in SWAT that I, was, I had that background, I, they started sending me out to every <laughs> high-profile... Um, place in the city, building in the city, every consulate in the city, and I would get a set of blueprints and I would walk through the plant, the building, making sure it was as built and we'd keep a copy on the SWAT truck. Because if you can stop and think, even where you're broadcasting from, if there were a SWAT call up at your location and I've never been inside of it, how do I know where your office is if I have to do a rescue? Just look for the but cats. If I have a, <laughs> my cats are always next to me <laughs> so that's that's why i mean i i've seen the inside of everything and then when and then to add to it when the 1984 olympics came to los angeles they sent me to every venue to every uh athlete's village to everything including and if it if we didn't have a set of blueprints for like the Coliseum, I'd have to draw. Guess who had to draw? I'd have to draw. I bet you got sick Jeez. of architecture after that. That's probably the last thing you ever expect to be doing on LAPD. Oh wasn't gosh, it? it is. I thought I was getting out of it, and then I wound up starting my own business doing it, designing houses. Smart. Well, there Smart. you go. Make some money off of it. Hey, but but when you were on the accident division. Um, were you within Hollywood doing that then, or where were you at, or were they kind of a separate division that was a resource for everybody? No, that's a good question, because LAPD by that time had not what they call bureauized. So you have certain bureaus. So a bureau is a group of, of stations or precincts, and you had Valley Bureau, you have Central Bureau, which was downtown, you had West Bureau, you had, you had the different bureaus. And... They didn't bureauize traffic. So we were in Hollywood, and Hollywood was, was our, our own. I worked uh, traffic out of Hollywood. And is that all you did? Well, the, 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 beauty, the beauty of working accident investigation, and, and the reason why I got into it, it wasn't something I was thinking, oh, man, I want to get into, into traffic accidents. When I was training as a recruit in Van Nuys, you'd hear, this is in patrol, you'd hear a call come out the traffic accident and right away 
partner would go, oh, let's go around this because they didn't know how to take that report. Let's avoid that spot. We're going to make a U-turn and go back the other way. And, I, and when I went to Hollywood, I got to thinking, I don't want to be that person, so I'm going to go, I'm going to learn how to do it. And it was actually the easiest thing to do. You only had to figure out how to take basically two or three reports, an accident report, a follow-up report, and a death report. That's all you had to figure out. And you would only get calls for service regarding traffic accidents so that if you heard another call come out, you could jump it. You could go to that and be the first one there because you weren't uh, tied down with, with other calls. Well, now, if you're, and, if you're, the, if you're the first the on only, site. And, and the beauty of it, <laughs> this is going to be bad, but the beauty of it is, just like I said with a patrol, patrol sergeants were the same way. They didn't know anything about it. So they would pretty much leave you alone because they didn't want to jump into something they knew nothing about. Now, if you jump in on another call and you're first on scene, are you the reporting officer then? No, we push it off to patrol when they get there. There you go. Oh, so you, you don't get have to all do the, the paperwork. Glory, but none of the paperwork, yes. <laughs> that's the best thing oh, about being backup. That, and, and that's the way Metro is. I love it. Oh, man. Yeah, you're, you're like MacArthur walking up onto the beach. I've come here to claim victory. The rest of you guys, get my luggage. I'm out of here. So you get it's the like paperwork. all the TV shows. You go at, it's like the TV shows. You go in, you do it, but you don't see them doing any paperwork. They're turning around and going right back out the door. If TV shows were built like it was in reality, you'd have two minutes right up front with all the shit going on in the next 48 minutes watching, you know, 58 minutes watching people write reports. That would be the most boring fucking TV show. Oh, listen, I I was working, I was an officer on one of the NCIS shows, and I talked to the, I talked to the um, TA, technical advisor on it, and I said, what's the story with this? He goes, one episode is about what a career is for an NCIS, <laughs> NCIS officer. That's a yeah. whole career in one episode. Well, nobody wants that's with, even with the Narcos series on Netflix, nobody wanted to watch us sitting in the embassy writing out teletypes. You know, they want to create all this <laughs> stuff know, like I, you're out there killing know, and running they, and they, hiding. They and... cut to the chase. <laughs> oh, by the way, Murph, just yeah. so that you know, I was watching Narcos Mexico last night. I think it's episode three. And they kind of, Wagner Mora d- directed episode three, but they, they show Pablo being killed at that time because uh, uh, Pacho and all the other guys that it's going on in El Chapo, you know, at the time, they showed, but they kind of blur you out. But there you are again, even though you weren't there in your red shirt, you know. That's amazing, isn't it? I'm going after you Pablo. Know, like we always say, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. Oh, hell no, man. If you ever get a, <laughs> some cops and some beer, we never let facts get in the way of our stories either. There I was, uh, no. knee-deep in grenade pins, all by myself, taking on 16 members, you know. Rick, so you, you worked traffic for three years. What At what point did you start getting the SWAT bug? At what point did you start going, yeah, that's something I want to do? When I first came on the police department and I was pushed out in patrol in Van Nuys, I... I already had an idea of what my career was going to be, which never, never came about. My idea of my career was going to be do 20, 25 years, make the rank of captain, and retire. And so, and never go out, never go behind a desk. I didn't want to start doing paperwork. I didn't want to be a detective. I, I wanted to stay in the street, which means I would have to take the sergeant's test and, instead of a detective's test, and that's where the split is. 
your police officer, police officer, police officer, and then all of a sudden you decide at some point in time you want to promote, you either promote detective and go in the detective direction, or you promote and you go in the um, sergeant, lieutenant, captain direction. Hey, and on the detective side, uh, is it still like D1, D2, D3, like where a D3 is like the equivalent of a sergeant or something or a lieutenant? D1, no, uh, uh, yeah, D3 is the equivalent of a, um, of a lieutenant. Okay. So D1 is pretty much your... Basic detective. Your basic detective. D2 is uh, maybe in charge of a, of a squad of section in yeah. detectives. And then a D3 is in charge of the whole detective bureau. Okay. And uh, there's a lot of... There's many different ways of going. You can go in, in investigation. You can go administrative vice. You can go... Um, SIS, which is a specialized uh, investigation section. There's a, a, a whole variety of things you can do. As with on the other side with Sergeant Lieutenant, you know, Sergeant 1, Sergeant 2, Sergeant 3, and then and so on. Or Sergeant 1 and Sergeant 2, and then Lieutenant. Okay. Um, so you, you thought about promoting up. You didn't want to do the, the, the detective route. What, what was it like? Did you end up taking the sergeant's test, or what was your path after? What, what was your path once you decided, this is the direction I want to go? So I, I did my accident investigation tour. I wanted to try and get as much street field experience as I could. So that's where accident investigation came in. And then I decided that it was time to, uh, to leave that, and there was an opening in Vice, so I went to Vice. Vice is an 18-month tour. They don't let you go pretty much past that. I was... Uh, why is that? And I worked... Why, why, just because of the stuff you're exposed to and the crap, or why, yeah, why 18 because months? Of the, yeah, exactly. In the last month, last two months I was in, in Vice, um, I was the uh, pimp investigator, and... Wait, wait a minute, what? Oh, that's, that's got to suck. The pimp investigator? Yeah, investigated pimping and pandering. You had, because there's different, within vice units, there's different, um, there's different jobs. You have bookmaking. I worked books for a couple, couple months, worked uh, the streets, uh, whether it were uh, the, uh, the girls, uh, the guys, there's bars that are um, serving uh, minors, that are serving over-drunks, I mean, over-intoxicated uh, people. Um, so th there are different um, levels or different job assignments uh, within, within the uh, vice unit. So I worked them all. My last couple of months, I was working the, uh, the pimp team, and uh, my partner retired, and so I was in charge of that. And then... I had to train the guy behind me, so they extended me twice. So I wound up working uh, about 20, 21 months in Vice. And when my tour was coming up, it was like, well, where do I want to go now? And you always take a look at what advances you. I, I wasn't getting into the promotional sergeant-taking test yet. Real quick, Rick, how many years did you have to have on to test for sergeant? Just five. Just five? Five, five yeah, that's it. So you were right around so, five years, right? No, at that time I was right around ten. Oh, oh I'm I sorry. Did yeah, five years. In, yeah, I did the five years, six years in Hollywood, um, and then uh, a couple of years in Van Nuys. So I was at uh, about seven, eight. Yeah. So you you could have taken the sergeant's test if you wanted to. Yes, I could yeah. have. I didn't want to take a step back and go back into patrol. 
I was looking at either going in an administrative vice or going into Metro. And once I found out, you know, the, what Metro was, it was a task force division. It is a task force division that doesn't have a home to call its own. So you never stay in one division too long. And they handle, they handle special problems. They handle uh, stakeouts. They handle riots. They handle major disturbances. They handle, if you're a captain in a division and you have a street robbery problem, but your officers are, are flooded with radio calls and they can't get to that problem, or they have a certain area that has a burglar problem, and I don't have enough officers to put in that area, then that they do, that captain would call Metropolitan Division, and Metropolitan Division's captain would say, not a problem, we'll send a team out. And so we would go into the division, work that problem until it's significantly dwindled, and then we go to another division. So we're constantly uh, hopping around throughout the entire city now. And not just the valley, but the entire city. And while I was doing that for two years, um, there were a couple of openings in SWAT. And at that time now, they're looking for people that did not have a military background. Because by bringing somebody in with a military background, they're already trained a certain way. And the SWAT officers, the instructors in SWAT, which were SWAT officers, they want to treat, they train want to you teach their you way. or train you their way, which I understand because military, even though some of the tactics are basically the same, some of the tactics are totally different because we have to answer to the city and the public. They don't. They go into a, into a war zone and it's a war. We are in, we can say it's a war zone in downtown L.A., but we still have to respond to the public and what the public's needs are. So totally different. You couldn't call in Roy Scheider and Blue Thunder to come in and take care of business for you, could you? Well, I had a <laughs> no. <laughs> I had a very good friend. I, I developed some very good friends with a uh, with the Navy um, special operations guys and uh, their special ops teams. And they said, like, when Grenada happened, they went into Grenada and they just start spraying bad guys. You can't do that in L.A. Every time you pull the trigger, you got to write a report. You press the trigger, oh, yeah. You've got to you've got to justify every round that goes downrange, not just spray and pray. So when did Metropolitan Division come into existence? Was that was it in existence when you got on? Uh, the police department as a rookie? Yeah, when I when I started my class, January 25th, 1971, was a restructuring of LAPD as far as as far as personnel goes. It was called the Jacobs class. And Jacobs pretty much restructured the uh, the whole LAPD. That's when they went from sergeants and watch commanders to sergeant 1 and 2 and they went to the three levels of detectives, and they went to three levels of police officers. You had a recruit, which was a P1. You had a P2, which was a training officer. Or uh, Let me back up. You had P1, which is a recruit. You had P2, which was off probation, but not a training officer. And then you had P3s that were training officers or specialized 
uh, police officers. So the Jacobs program restructured it all. And it was at that same time that SWAT, when SWAT first started, they were assigned to different divisions and a call-up would come in and they would have to go, they being the division that wanted SWAT to respond, would have to call a downtown um, division. They would have to call um, Detective Headquarters Bureau. And Detective Headquarters Bureau had all their names in a Rolodex and they would have to start calling individually 10, 12, 15 guys, whatever it was. And they would have to call the different divisions. And that officer, they would have to pull him out of that division whatever he was working and have him respond to uh, the call-up. Well, that was such an efficient way of getting stuff done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. And they've realized that. So in 71, all those officers came under one roof, which was Metropolitan Division. So you were the inspiration for Metropolitan Division because they knew this Rick Massa guy, he's going places. We've got to make sure we harness <laughs> yeah. his ability a few years yeah, from now. He knows how to work pimps and he can crawl in a tunnel. Yeah, he's a pimp investigator. We're going <laughs> to... Oh, my God. And, and, and draw a diagram of it while I do oh it. Oh, my God. There you go. There you go. Oh, geez. Oh, there's so many places we could go with that. Let us, uh, let no. us uh, let's return back to our regularly scheduled <laughs> podcast. So uh, so you, you got like about 10 years on, like you say. So what? What? how did you finally end up with SWAT? So um, did you take... By the way, did you take the sergeant's test or not? No, I didn't. Uh, and... Metropolitan Division is, uh, is the reason why. I got there and I found a home. I found uh, it was like home. And I decided, do I want to, if you take the sergeant's test, then you have to leave and go back out and patrol and make probation, and then you could try to reapply. There were... Metropolitan Division is a division that is, it's like, like I explain to people, it's, a, it's like a pie. And each piece of the pie is a specialized unit, whether it's administrative, B-boy platoon for the officers that live towards out in the valley and, and the Santa Monica area, C-Charlie platoon, which are for the officers that live uh, in Hollywood and south, maybe uh, south of Los Angeles, and then you have D platoon, which is uh, uh, SWAT, which is officers that apply from the other platoons. You have E platoon, which is the mounted unit, which came into being while I was working Metro. And you have K-9. And each platoon has its own ranking within it. They have their own lieutenant, their own sergeants, and their officers. And so when I first went into Metro, I went into boy platoon. And the first, the very first details I worked was actually over in a very affluent area, which they had what they dubbed the Spider-Man burglar. And he was crawling up the outside of two-story apartments or two-story houses and going in through a second floor and uh, burglarizing that night. So I would get dropped off. By myself, they would put officers, because now that you're in Metro, they rely on you to be able to work by yourself. So I remember crawling into some bushes and you don't knock on the door and say, hey, I'm going to be out in front of your house. 
I crawled into some bushes uh, in front of a two-story house, and I sat there all night long till the sun came up. Now that had to be fun. Oh yeah, wow. fun when the lady brings her dog out to start <laughs> sniffing around the bushes. Oh. Hey, now did you have oh. any? Uh... And di- and she didn't ha- had no idea I was there. Well, did you tell her you were there? Did these, you go these... pop up and go hi? It's me. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> these were the stakeouts that I talked earlier about. This was something different that you're still serving the public, but you're getting into stuff that now is is a little bit more involved than just patrol. Just, just responding to calls for service. So right, did you correct. ever get made on one of those surveillance? Did anybody, dog, ever come up and whiz no. on your leg and, no. you know, expose your no. position? I was worried about it, though. <laughs> I was worried. <laughs> yeah, but you're in a position now where you're, you're, you're really being more proactive rather than reactive. You know, you're getting yourself into positions where you can respond if something happens. Yeah, we were, at that point, Metropolitan Division is a is a proactive uh, unit. So did you catch the Spider-Man burglar? Oh, yeah. I wasn't one of the officers, but we, we eventually caught him and then went on to do something else. And that's the beauty of working Metro. You work this for a little while, and then all of a sudden you go somewhere else. We did all the VIP protections. Every foreign dignitary that came into Los Angeles, we provided the um, protection detail. If we had a witness that was a witness to a crime, we would provide the uh, witness protection detail to make sure that they didn't uh, all of a sudden wind up uh, missing. So there was a wide variety of, of jobs that was very, um, very attractive. What was the worst job, which worst assignment you got assigned to in Metro that nobody wanted to work? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot anything of anything other than <laughs> being inserted through a mail slot. So anything be- yeah. besides that. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't know. Maybe it was a graveyard spot working a stakeout. Not not a stakeout, but a protection detail. Um, I can remember a lot of the presidential details we were on, and and foreign dignitaries we were on. Some of the some of the spots until I. Until I got further up the ladder, with until I got into SWAT or further up in the ladder uh, within the team, you might be standing graveyards till it's midnight till eight in the morning, uh, guarding a gate, guarding a hallway, you know, guarding a, a back door, and that's yeah. all you did. Welcome to that the life of the a secret worst. service agent. Yeah, yeah. And you yeah. know what? That's exactly right. When we got when we further, well, the, the, they would give the, those jobs to us. Oh, um, hell yeah. <laughs> of course, they're feds. They you know how those feds the ladder, are. One of the, looking at the best details regarding VIP protections was on President Reagan. When President Reagan came into town, he was probably the nicest person, and I was on his motorcade. And I can remember once when, um, when they came into town, he and his wife, they had a party to go to over in Hamby Hills. And they, we motorcade, they never, we never break down the motorcade. We never say bring in another motorcade. So we came in, we did uh, motorcade them to Century Plaza Hotel. And then we had a break until later that afternoon, that night. So we went out, sat by the pool, kicked back, and then we'd come back, we'd motorcade them up. And remember this, it was a party that Nancy Reagan was going to 
for a birthday party for their friends. And they had catered, obviously the party was catered, but then what Reagan requested, he was so pro-police, he requested that Secret Service and all the police officers be catered also in a separate tent on the, on the property. And so our, our, was, our, event, our, our event, our detail was all catered. So that was nice, and, and he, he had done that. We had heard where standing outside of his door would be a SWAT cop and a Secret Service agent, and one day he had opened up the door after, right after breakfast was delivered, and he said, hey, I haven't touched any of these, any of this. You guys are more than welcome to come in and have some. And, and that's just the way he was. Nice touch. So those were those were great details to be on. Well, he had a he had a wicked sense of humor too. I remember one of the stories, and you can find this on YouTube or anything. He made a joke. He said, "Look, we've just outlawed Russia. We begin bombing in five minutes," and everybody took him serious. <laughs> <laughs> I heard about that. Yeah, that is true. Well, he was called the great communicator for a reason. He did. I mean, his uh, D-Day speech uh, at Normandy, talking about the boys of Point Du Hoc. My dad was a World War II vet, and that struck home. I mean, his the, just the way I know he had speechwriters, but the way he delivered it, you know, what what he put behind it. I mean, it, anyway, we could, we could go down a path on that stuff. So, who, so other than the president, who was the most famous foreign dignitary you got to, you know, rub elbows with? Gosh, I wrote all of them down one at one point. Um, we've done them all. All of a sudden, SWAT got away from doing foreign dignitaries. Because if we're on a dignitary protection detail, and usually somebody that big takes the whole team, if there were a SWAT call-up, then what do we do? We can't just drop the foreign dignitary. Uh, so we trained one of the other units and one of the other uh, platoons within Metro, and they had taken it over. Nice. I mean, that makes perfect sense. You can't be in two places at one time. Well, yeah. just tell Prince Charles, hey, you want to go on a ride with us? We're going to go kick down a door. You, you want to come along? Oh, I can remember. I can remember what was it? Uh, I, I've done five or six presidents. That's how long I was around. Different presidents. And there are those that, that didn't want you to look at them when they were walking by you. Oh, jeez. Make no eye contact with them. And there were those like uh, Bush... Um, the older Bush, he used to go for runs. So Secret Service would jog, but they, but they would want me, because I was a runner at the time, they would want me to jog with Secret Service because now I'm the point of contact for our SWAT team as they are the point of contact for their Secret Service team. So I would be jogging off to the distance. And how much equipment are you carrying with you while you're, quote, jogging? I'd be jogging with a 2-inch with a 38 in my hand covered by a sock. I'd put a sock over man or a glove. That was it. that was it. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> Is that a thirty-eight in your hand, or you're in your sock, or are you just glad to see me? <laughs> yeah. you just be careful on who you're shaking hands. Oh with. my god! <laughs> <laughs> wow, you're really glad to see me there, aren't you, Rick? Yeah. So uh, let's talk about now your journey into SWAT, because I mean, we we set a lot of the context. You know, we see how you're going. So now you're in Metro Division. What precipitates this move to SWAT? I mean, was it a decision one day? Is that because you said when you started, that was the furthest thing from your mind. But now, um, that's where you're headed. How did you end up heading there? We were losing our lieutenant. I was in uh, boy platoon, losing our lieutenant. And I decided at that point to, uh, to uh, go ahead and, um, and try. I didn't have a military background. I didn't know how they were going to feel about that. 
So myself and uh, there was uh, only two spots open and there were a number of applicants and you had to, I can remember when I went in to take my interview, they had just finished with a detail and it was about one o'clock in the morning. They gave me a call, my, my oral interview was supposed to be earlier than that, but they said, come in later because we want to, uh, we want to talk to you. But they had just uh, finished doing a, um, some type of a crowd control detail. And so I came in one o'clock in the morning and I sat and they asked you questions and you have to have a uh, marksmanship uh, bonus and you have to have um, certain uh, qualifications as far as physical fitness goes from within Metro. Um, so it was, it was pretty tough to get in at that time. It's even tougher now. But I, I passed and found myself in, uh, in D-team. What was your training like? Once you, once you get put on SWAT, it's almost like, is it like going through another academy again? I mean, you've got to start uh, school, in a sense, all over again? Yeah, it's, just, a lot, it's just, just about the same because it's totally different. You're now, now what they're training you to do, because none of the other platoons did the protection details, now we're going through training for protection details. They don't train patrol officers for that. They don't train the other metro officers for that. Now they do. But at that time when I went into SWAT, which is in 1980, 1981, we're the only ones did, doing that. So it was a lot of protection detail. It was a lot of, of what we call close quarter battle with, uh, with firearms. It was a lot of making entries. SWAT was very structured. It was what, it's what they call a pseudo-military uh, group in which when they first started, they were looking for officers that had their own weapons that that could take that would have military training. They would have the military come up and train those officers. Those officers go down to Camp Pendleton to train. Now it's gone just the opposite to where we're training military in close quarters battle and how to make entries long long before Iraq. Yeah, because a lot of it was it's, it trans you know moved from the battlefield to urban. You know exactly. It moved from urban warfare. It yeah. moved from Vietnam jungle warfare to city city to city and in that type of warfare. And so what better place than they brought us now down to Camp Pendleton. It's almost like that circle had gone full, full swing because now we're going down and we're training the military. But, but going into, I'll never forget this, going into SWAT, we were issued a 45 and we were issued an M16. Keep in mind, this is pre-1984 Olympics. No budget. We did not have a budget. So my 45 was made up of pieces. My frame, the frame of my 45 was stamped U.S. Army. The slide was a Springfield slide off of a Springfield 45. And the thing, you could shake it and you could hear all the, all the pieces shaking in it. Oh, so you're lucky if you hit the target. <laughs> you're Jeez. lucky if the thing didn't blow up on you. My M16, I peeled the evidence tag off of it <laughs> because it was confiscated 
used in court as evidence and there was a standing rule that once the court case had been adjudicated, Metro could take the weapons and use them for parts and pieces and, and to be deployed. You said a while ago that initially they were looking for people that had their own weapons. You, you mean personal yeah, they, weapons? Yeah, they were looking for police officers that had their own hunting guns, hunting rifles, uh, their own guns, because they weren't issuing any guns. They would take you, Steve, if you were in the military or you were a hunter and you had a gun, you would then, if you wanted to apply, you would apply to be in the voluntary SWAT team and they would take guys and they would send them down to Camp Pendleton to teach them um, basic movement and, uh, and response training. That completely got switched around when Metro when sucked up SWAT in 1971 and actually their first SWAT's first big battle prior to 1971 where they were really tested was in 1968 against the uh, Black Panther movement down at 40, 41 and Central 41st and Central they were serving a warrant and uh, patrol was serving a warrant and they kind of knew something was going to happen and they uh, they responded. SWAT responded. Jeez, and they showed up what with what their deer rifles and their squirrel guns or holy yeah. cow, that's just that's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, they didn't. Uh, they weren't. Um, they weren't using uh, assault rifles. Then. Well, Rick, you're so old. Did you bring a musket loader or did you actually have like a oh. semi-automatic weapon? You have to take a squirrel rifle. <laughs> Yeah, but I was damn fast with that musket. <laughs> there you go. I could reload in 10 seconds, 15 seconds, yeah. <laughs> wow. So, the, see, but you know what? But that's the way it was in a couple places, too. Guys would get on. Girls would get on. You'd have to buy your own body armor at that time, buy your own weapons and stuff. And uh, I know a lot of that stuff's changed, but I think people forget it was BYOG, you know, for a lot. When you know, bring your own guns, bring your own ammo, bring your own, no, bring it, your own it gear. Was. Yeah. It, it really was because the police department – the police department – when Daryl Gates first started SWAT, and actually when, when it went into Metro, there was the idea that we were, and I kid you not, we were a necessary evil. Our unit was a necessary evil. We only want to call them in when it's absolutely necessary because somebody's going to get killed. And that's the furthest from truth. In all the years that that I was there, and I was there for 25 years, we probably got into one shooting out of the entire year, and we're talking anywhere from 150 to the most call-ups call and high-risk warrants we served of 300 in one year. My God. So that's, wow. not bad. that's not bad. When you're dealing with a high-level criminal that is probably the worst that that you can encounter. How did you maintain that operational tempo? I mean, 300 in a year. I mean, that's like... Well, this, I'll never forget, there was one time period and it actually happened right now. We're in the Thanksgiving week and it seems like call-ups would always go up around the holidays. And I can remember we had in the six days that preceded, no, that... Um, that came right after Thanksgiving, the six days, we had at least 12, 13 call-ups in one week. 
where we would, and they were all off hours. That's what killed us. So you would get a call up at one o'clock in the morning. It would be over by, you talk the guy out, you surround the place, fill the, fill the tear gas. It would last maybe about six hours. You'd go to work, work your, work your regular work day. You're on your way home. You get a call up at uh, seven, eight o'clock at night that would take you to one o'clock in the morning. You'd have to get up at, uh, and I can remember during that same period, we were going home from one call up and turn around and go right to another call up back to back. That happened a couple times. The way officers, SWAT officers work as far as deployment goes and call up responsibility goes is we have 60 officers in the unit. And out of those 60 officers, you split it in half. 30 officers are on day watch, 30 officers are on night watch. We have 10 officers to a squad, and there's a sergeant in charge of each squad. So you have three squads day watch with three sergeants, you'd have three squads night watch with three sergeants. And then after two weeks, you would flip-flop. So the guys that are working days, they would handle the daytime call-ups. The guys that are working nights would handle the nighttime call-ups and the standby until day watch came in the next day. So if I'm working days, I get off at four o'clock in the afternoon and day watch starts at four and they get off at midnight and they would handle the midnight till eight o'clock in the morning call-ups. Two weeks that I'm talking about, one week I was talking about, we worked nights, but we'd have the standby all during the day and we were going nonstop for one week. And guys were just getting tired. Jeez. They were just getting beat up. Oh yeah. Well, you, you can only go, you can only have that kind of adrenaline going. You can only operate at that tempo. Like we keep talking about, you know, folks who hear it called op tempo, operational tempo. You can only go so fast for so far for so long till the body goes, Hey dude, we need a break. Take a break. Let's yep. take a yeah. Well, that happened one night after we had a call up and we're down in 77th and I made a comment to the lieutenant and I said, you know what? It's going to kill us if we get a canine call out now because SWAT would handle any canine call outs that had that was related to an officer involved shooting. So if an officer patrol officer got involved in shooting and we hear about those all the time, then what would happen was the. Um, we would meet the canines and we would go out and do a canine search with them. And you can imagine being for a week up all night, all day, and then have to go door to door, start searching for bad guys. And he said, you know, you're exactly right. He goes, we'll call the other team and the other team will now have responsibility to take over. And so they swapped us out as far as who had the uh, standby responsibility. And it was a smart call because my team was beat. They were, they were, did you get off days? How'd you work off days in on those? You work, uh, you work days off uh, at the uh, beginning of the month. You'd put in your days off. In SWAT, we usually had weekends off, which was nice. It just means that whoever the last, the last shift for Friday, they would have standby all the way through till Monday morning. I mean, it's good. It's good for the overtime, but it's also tough on family because you want to go someplace. I can remember, you know, my daughter, who's now 45, she grew up with me in SWAT. She, uh, she was, uh, I'm trying to think of how old she was when I first went into SWAT. In 80, she was six. She was about seven years old. And I can remember many times on Father's Day, because I, I was uh, divorced. She was only three when, when I went through a divorce. 
and we had stayed, we've stayed and still are extremely close. I can remember there are days where I'd have to drop her off at my mom's house or somebody's house because I had to go over and call it. And, you know, that's, that's the responsibility that you take that you know when you get into SWAT. You, I don't want to say your family suffers, your family learns to live with it. Right. Okay. So, you know, for two weeks, when you're on standby for two weeks, you have nights or you don't have the weekends. Don't make any plans. Don't make plans. Don't plan on going to Disneyland for the day. You know, there's a lot of restaurants that I'd walk out of. There's a lot of restaurants. If there's a call out at Disney, I can get you in for free. Let's go. <laughs> I know. They're, uh, Pack your bags. Let's go. So because of that, you know, there, it's, a lot of guys wouldn't go into it because they, they didn't want their families to suffer. Yeah. And I'd look, it, again, Murph, you talk about this too, you know, especially when you're doing Pablo or, you know, even cases afterwards, you know, I'd get called out, a detective, you get called out at three o'clock in the morning, double homicide or something, you might see your bed for three days. And, but you know, but that's, it, it is, it's tough on the family, but I like the way you say, it. you know, the, the family, you learn to adapt, you learn to live with it, but we have a great story about your daughter. I'm going to save till later because it, because it deals with uh, the shooting, but let's, let's do this now. We've got a really good idea now, of, you know, because the fascinating thing for me, even after doing this job in Murph, you learn about the history, you learn about the way things are structured, about the way you operate, because it's very important now once we start getting into, you know, what the story is going to be about, which is the North Hollywood shootout. But prior to doing that, um, you, you're on SWAT, you're working all of these details. There comes a time to where uh, there are a series of robberies start happening uh, in the San Fernando Valley, you know, in your area out there. And you've got people that you've got some armored cars starting to be robbed. In fact, uh, that was July 93. There was a Denver robbery. But in July 95, I think is when it really starts getting your attention. Let's start let's start painting the picture because one of those was in the San Fernando Valley. It was a Brinks armored car robbery, a driver by the name of Herman Dwight Cook, a security guard shot three times in the upper abdomen, died. They, they wounded a driver, uh, the driver named Philippe Cortez, shot four times in the next jaw and chest. I mean, you know, you started having these things happening, but what point did this start getting your attention? Because now what we want to do is start setting the context for the North Hollywood shootout, because there is a series of robberies, uh, armored car and bank robberies that start happening before you guys get involved. So let's walk through some of those and what you knew about them because you actually ended up doing stakeouts for a while because of that. Well, the, the armored car robberies, they didn't run a flag up a flagpole because of those. Um, we only found out about those later. Our, the two suspects that we're talking about, Larry Phillips and Emil Modestoreno, um, did a couple of uh, armored car robberies, but then they switched to banks. And L.A. is known, at that time, L.A. was known as the bank robbery capital of the world. You could have a bank robbery happen just about any time of the day. Um, there was... Well, hey, let's talk about that for a second. What, in your mind, being SWAT, being a cop out there, in your mind, what led to this thing where it was like anybody who wanted to rob a bank went to L.A.? Is that just because of, you know, the one thing we didn't talk about, and this gets into talking about the banks... Los Angeles, the area you guys covered, is a very dispersed area. I mean, it's a huge area to cover, and the number of officers you have to do it with is less than what people think. So, uh, you know, getting into the mid-90s now, you know, how many officers were on LAPD at the time? 
if you remember? Oh, LAPD, I think through that in my in first part of my career, only had about 8,000, and half of that would be in the street. Now, you're dividing that half into 16 precincts, not counting all your specialized units, your vice units, your your um, all the, the, the bike details and, and, and all of that. So at any one time, you might have, now this is going to sound really bad, but you might only have um, 20 officers on shift, on a shift at one time, depending upon the area. In the morning watch, you might have less because um, you don't have as many calls for service. At night watch, you might have more because there are more calls for service. Day watch, uh, same thing. So each division is a little bit different for what their needs are and also for what the area is. But when you think about it, you're talking about 20, 30 police officers, and that's it for that whole area. Yeah. And what was the population like around that time? I mean, between the city and the county? Um, oh, boy, I don't know. You remember how big, like... I mean, you know, you start thinking it's, you know, maybe five or six million or something like that. The, what I'm doing is just kind of putting it in perspective because New York had set, you know, has seven or eight million people in New York City. Oh, no, we have Los Angeles. You stop and think about it. Los Angeles is the second largest city in the United States. And that's right behind New York. So we have 8,000 police officers. They have 35,000 police officers. Yeah, that's that's the point I was trying to make. So So you can get the idea that we have 30 police officers and they're responding to radio calls all over the city and an area you take Van Nuys that can go from uh, a, a huge area to other divisions like Rampart that's not as big. So it really depends upon what the area is to how many police officers they have and detectives and specialized units and motors and traffic and, and all that. Right. And that's kind of what I was getting into is what made Los Angeles the bank robbery capital of the world, I think, you know, or the bank robbery, at least capital of the U.S. I think part of it, too, was just how dispersed you were. Well, and how it, you know what? And you're right, Morgan. Los Angeles is so spread out. I mean, it is extremely spread out. As a, if we're going to make that comparison to New York, the traffic, the downtown traffic in New York is crazy. So you want to try and do a getaway, you're going to sit there in traffic. But in Los Angeles, heck, we have so many freeways and so many surface streets that you're, you can get in and out in no time flat before the police get there. Poli that was one of the things that our bank robbery suspects looked at was response time, response time into the bank by the police. They did their homework. They knew exactly what they, uh, how long they could be in the bank. Yeah, and that's that's kind of what I was getting. The reason I'm setting this context is that all of this is so important to really understand the story about how it went down, what planning was involved, you know, and, and the way they pulled these things off. But as I was starting to pull up some of the stats too, the one thing that was interesting is they tried a March uh, 1996 uh, attempted robbery of a armored car, but that that guy was able to evade them some evasive driving. Right, and that's what I think. I think that's what you said. I think so. The first. The first one I know of is May 2nd, 1996, the San Fernando Valley Bank of America was one of the first robberies. It was in Van Nuys. It was in Van Nuys, my old area, actually. And, and they, but they had done so much at that time, they were delivering anywhere from 750000 to a million dollars of cash to a bank at, you know, at one time that the armored car would show up, drop it off, and they would have all of this cash sitting there. Yeah. You know, banks don't keep all the money in their in their vaults overnight. Armored car comes in, they drop off in the morning, they drop off, like you said, about 800000 to a $1 million. 
and they would come back in the evening and pick it up and take it to the uh, Federal Reserve downtown. When they would do that, uh, they weren't, obviously they weren't figuring there was going to be a major withdrawal by suspects, but that's how they, that's what their protocol was. It wasn't until our two suspects decided to start robbing banks that they changed that. Yeah, because right after the May 2nd one in 96, there's a May 31st one, uh, another Bank of America, same thing, you know, San Fernando Valley, that area. And between the two, here's the thing. You talk about being greedy fuckers. Between the two, they made $1.5 million, and they still didn't stop. $1.5 million between two banks. If $755,000 on the first one, May 2nd, and then they hit another one in West Valley, still in San Fernando Valley, keeping in mind that's still in the city of Los Angeles. West Valley is another one of the little communities. And they walked in, and they took uh, 794 about $800,000 in that one. And, and the thing is, is that the reason why they were successful, if you want to say that, in those two bank robberies is, like I said earlier, they did their homework. Suspects knew how long they had to be in the bank, which was eight minutes. They designed their, their equipment to where they had a stopwatch on lanyards. The lanyard or string or rope was attached to their glove, and they were hit the stopwatch when they went in. They knew they could only be in there eight minutes if somebody hit, a, hit a, uh, an alarm, and they would be out. They knew what type of, what type of uh, weapons LAPD carried at that time. At that time, the only weapons were a 9mm, a 38, and a shotgun with double-lot buck. So they wore bulletproof uh, vests. Phillips was wearing 43 pounds of body armor at that time. Montesereno had body armor on the front chest and back that was uh, ceramic plates. Ceramic plate Which would stop high-powered rifle. Will stop rounds. a high-powered rifle, and so they knew that if they got in a confrontation, that they were going to be protected against the type of weapons that LAPD carried. They had ski masks on. They had web gear or belts that had drum magazines or spare magazines all the way around on uh, on their body. So they knew. Yeah, and these went from 30-round clips to 100-round clips, or sometimes 200 rounds if they had the double. Um, yeah, that was only uh, the one weapon. They, ha- they were carrying AK-47s, and they were, which carries, I think, about 70 rounds per drum magazine. And they both had over 1,000 rounds of ammo on them. And, and now you stop and think about that, put that into context with if you were out on patrol— and you have a 38 with maybe 18 rounds on you. You're just going to piss them off is all you're going to do. You just shot me with the 38. You just <laughs> piss me off, you know? Yep. And I'll tell you, too, I don't want to jump ahead, but when this happened and then the, you look down and you see that firepower, then I look down and I'm carrying a Smith & Wesson 5904 at that time, a, a 9 millimeter. I'm going, <laughs> you know, now this ain't going to do any good, you know? But, you know. you know, so many things change that. Let's, let's go back real quick, though, and talk about their M.O., because they they came up with a name for them called them the high incident bandits, but but they also were takeovers, right? So they they just didn't walk in and say, "Hey, this is a stick up." Walk through some of the stuff they did to really get people's attention. So they were takeover bandits. What they would do is they would park their car on the side of the bank. They would walk in and they would pull their ski masks down as soon as they walk in. 
And the first thing they do is they would fire uh, 20 to 30 rounds into the ceiling, get everybody's attention. They would order everybody to the, to the ground. If somebody didn't move fast enough in North Hollywood, they butt stroke one little old lady uh, to the ground with, and that was Montesorano, with the, the butt of his rifle. Um, they would then go over to, they would, they would not hit the tellers because they knew the tellers had uh, die, die, die packs. packs. So they would go over to the door, the bandit barrier, clear, I want to say, their Lexan, which is, Lexan is a bullet-resistant plastic. You see that in between all the, all the different, uh, the banks where it's between you and the person. It's Lexan glass. It's not really glass, but it's a material that will resist bullets, but not make it bulletproof. So at what point, they, what they would do is they would go up to the door that leads into the back, uh, where the vault is. They would put a number of rounds through the doorknob until where it falls off, and they just open the door. They would go into the, uh, into the vault, while one suspect, uh, Matasrena, would stay out uh, guarding the people on the, on the floor. Larry Phillips would go in, and he would take uh, all of the money, put it out of the vault, put it in a, a hamper size uh, duffel bag, and they would, they would exit all within their eight minutes. And, and Rick, the other thing they did too that was very unique for them, it was the type of ammunition. This was one of the first times, or actually this is the first time that you said that they'd seen this in bank robberies. Well, this is what now what sent that red flag up the flagpole. Never before in the history where FBI has seen armor-piercing rounds used in a bank robbery. Like I said, bank robberies happen all, at that point happened all the time. Or a guy passes a note, guy walks in, simulates a gun, maybe even pulls a gun. But never before were they using armor-piercing rounds in high-powered rifles. And they were literally walking in looking like uh, RoboCop. Um, or they were somebody out of a... Uh, Gulf War that uh, was uh, heavily armed, a lot of ammunition, and they didn't think they were going to uh, just give up. I mean, these guys weren't going to just give up. So they walk in, and uh, FBI says, uh, we haven't seen this before. After two bank robberies, after those two bank robberies in May, they got a hold of, uh, of us, LAPD SWAT, and we started doing stakeouts. And they would stake out certain banks over in the North Hollywood area. We staked out certain banks uh, in uh, another part of the uh, San Fernando Valley, all Bank of Americas. And for two months, didn't have a hit, not one. Our idea was that if they were going to hit, we would let them hit the bank. They, weren't, they didn't kill anybody in, in the bank, so we felt pretty confident that they would come out, get in a car, drive back to one of their houses or one of their safe houses, and we would then turn it into a barricade to where we could use tear gas or other special uh, tactics that we had. Hey, and Rick, on that point, too, a lot of people are going to think, well, why don't you just arrest them when they're going into the bank? And the thing is, if you confront them there at the bank, they've got what, 18 to 20 potential hostages now that, you know, so when people say, well, why would you let them go in and rob and then come out? 
are you playing on the stats, you know, or on, on the on the probability that they're not going to shoot anybody? Yeah, but what's the downside? Yeah, you are. You have to. Yeah, what? But you what's the to. downside? The downside is you confront them while they're in the bank, and now you've got eighteen to twenty hostages that they can shoot. Well, you you can't confront them when they're walking into the bank because they haven't done anything other than the rifles they have with them, which um, probably get into later as far as uh, that happening earlier. Um. So you have to wait until they go in the bank. If you, have them, if you take them down when they're in the bank, the element of surprise is on their side. They're in the bank. It's their stronghold. You're, you're running into an area you're not familiar with, plus you have 18, 20 hostages to where now you have bullets going every direction. And one of the things that we have to remember is that we do not want to put in, in hostage rescue, in in barricaded suspects, we do not want to put the public in a position where we put them in harm's way. We, we have to keep that in mind. So we don't want to rush the bank because, because of that. We felt pretty confident if they come out, they've gotten in their car in the past, they drive it over, they have in the past, they've torched cars and they have a getaway car in the neighborhood and then just drive off. We felt that we'd have an air unit do surveillance on them and be able to pick them up going into a house. We would then surround the house and then we would be able to treat it as a barricade. Typical barricade, it's our bread and butter. Uh, surround it, call them out. They don't want to come out, put tear gas in. Well, Rick, you made, you made reference to an earlier incident where <clears throat> they were stopped by police. They had not committed an act but certain items were found, right? Well, we want to save that. that. That's what we're talking about. We want to save that for later because nobody knows that at this time. And, and I, th I was about to say that. This is going to be, folks, when you hear this, this is going to be an oh shit moment. When we tell you about, when we tell you about this, this is going to be one of those things you're going to hit your head to your forehead and you're going to go, motherfucker. You know, it's going to be one of those moments. But, um, yeah, we want to we want to save that because at the time, kind of the way we're walking through folks through this is that we're walking it through based on what you guys knew at the time. You didn't know about this stuff. You didn't know about, uh, and we'll talk about what Phillips. Did. All we knew at this point was that we had two bank robberies, where armor-piercing rounds were used. We had photos. I had talked to a North Hollywood officer that said they got a briefing. This was before. Actually, this was before our stakeouts. The North Hollywood officer told us that they were told at briefing how heavily armed these guys were. And you could tell from the pictures that they were wearing body armor that they were basically told, obviously, to use extreme care because somebody was going to get killed because of the way these guys acted, their mannerisms, their equipment they had, that we have never seen anything like this before. And I was, that was relayed to me. And then all of a sudden we're pulled into this with an FBI briefing on what they were looking for and what they were involved in with the uh, two banks. And that's when we were in briefings regarding the two bank robberies. We were also told about the two armored car robberies that we're now made aware of when which one of the drivers was killed. Um, the other driver made some evasive vehicular actions that caused them not to uh not to overtake the uh their armored car 
there are pictures where they show the armored cars got bullet holes in the windshields, but that was, uh, again, Lexan glass to where it takes more than one bullet to go through it. And uh, the driver was able to uh, save, probably save his own neck. How, how much of the info that you got on the briefing with the FBI, um, wh what, what, what did that briefing in a sense consist of? I mean, did they have any intelligence on who they thought they might be, who they thought they might be associated with? I mean, you start thinking, is this a criminal gang? Are they tied to terrorists? Are they tied to organized crime? You know, what was the sense of who you were dealing with when you guys got these briefings to do the stakeouts? You know, at the time, they did not know the suspects by name. The reason why we were getting called in only after two bank robberies was because, obviously, of the equipment. If you take a look at their picture, the equipment they had on them, the body armor, the assault rifles, and the fact that they, were, they had their timing down, and then the obvious, the armored piercing rounds, they were worried that it might be uh, military that has... Uh, gone bad, maybe police officers that have gone bad, somebody that has access to the armor-piercing rounds. At that time, armor-piercing rounds, you go into a, a gun store, they don't carry them. That's not something that a gun store normally carries. So they were very concerned. Were you, was anybody ever able to determine where those rounds came from? They rob an armory or black market? No, they were able to determine where some of the weapons and, and magazines came from, from... Um, from a gun show in uh, Colorado. There's, a, in, there's an interesting question that we'll get into later after this whole thing, the smoke settles. After we discover officially like who they are and what their background is. But I'll tell you what, one of the things that still is a question in my mind regarding what you said, Steve. Yeah, because I think that's the whole thing is where did they get the shit, you know, but... That being said, so you guys are on, did you have any close calls? Did you have any bank robberies you actually ended up getting involved with because of the stakeout that weren't tied to these guys? No, this is one of those details we talked about earlier where, where you're seated in a plane car off in a distance and uh, you're seated there eight hours a day for uh, two months. It's better than bushes. Let me tell you something. It's better than the bushes. <laughs> <laughs> and just your luck, the time when you say, I got to go pee and you leave for 30 something seconds, happens. that's when the robbery yeah, happens. Really. <laughs> it's called Murphy's Law. Yeah, man. Murphy's Law strikes again. So what happens after the stakeouts? I mean, because they obviously prove fruitless. Nothing happens. Did you believe that they were going to hit again, or did you think that, now nah, you know, something's happened to them? No, FBI actually, and, and along with us, we felt that, well, they have a million and a half, 25 years ago, a million and a half was a lot of money. It's a lot of money now. And that they, um, that they were happy with their, with their taking. There's only two of them. And that, uh, that they were satisfied with that or that they were in jail for some other unrelated crime. And that's what pulled them off the street. After, but after those two months, how how long does it take before that's out of your mind? Because obviously you got warrants that you're doing, you got operations that you're running, you got other stuff. How long before this falls off the bookshelf of things that you were currently thinking about? Pretty quickly, because like you said, we have other stuff going. Now, I'm sure the detectives kept working it. And the detectives I talked to after the instance, they said that they were getting close, but they work it every day. Whereas, hey, tomorrow we've got to serve uh, a high-risk warrant uh, 
uh, maybe two locations at the same time. We have a call-up uh, three days later that uh, involves a, a hostage situation. So we can't dwell on one thing that we've done too long because something else comes up uh, the next day. And committing two months to just static surveillance, that, that's, a that's quite it. a long time. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a, it's, actually, it's a very long time when you look at it. And if you go back and look at the timeline too, they, um, you know, they took some time off between the Brinks armored car robbery, um, but they did have an attempted robbery, you know, on March 27th of 96. But then it seems like you say they transitioned pretty quickly then. Uh, it only took them a couple months uh, to get into robbing banks, actually less than a, you know, less than a month. Right. Or just a little over a month. So, um, so you know, we've kind of set the context. This is still going on. You guys got all sorts of stuff, but eventually we come to the day. And the day is February 27th, you know, 19 or February 28th, 1997. So let's talk about how your day starts, because um, obviously that day, you don't know that this is going to go on. I mean, it, it, for you, it's like you say, it's off your bookshelf. You're, you're working on other stuff. Tell us about what you were prepping for and what you were doing uh, to lead up into, you know, February 28th. Well, you know, Morgan, you're, you're exactly right. The, there is never a day where I would wake up or any police officer would wake up, yawn, uh, and then say, ah, today's a great day for a shooting. I think I'll get involved <laughs> in a shooting today. It, it doesn't, th th that's so far from true. My day, I, uh, I'm a horse owner, and I wake up in the morning on the February 28th. Uh, it's a Friday. I, Wait a minute. Now you're a horse owner, so you got to be somewhere outside. You can't be on one of those sixth of an acre lots, you know, <laughs> like they have around those. No, places. where I live, it's a horse community, and I have half an acre to an acre. So half acre is the smallest acres uh, and up. And I had uh, two, three horses on my property, barn turnouts, the whole thing. What kind of horses? Uh, at that time, I had uh, two quarter horses and one thoroughbred. And how did you get into the horse thing? I've been a horse follower since I was a kid. I'd have my mom drop me off at Pickwick riding stables, and I'd go in when I was a teenager. And, and knowing that they only give you nags, I would tell them that I was a, a stunt rider for the local. And, and Pickwick is over by Burbank Studios and Warner Brothers and all those. And I'd tell them I was a stunt rider for the uh, movie industry, and I was just taking some time off, and I wanted a good horse. So I'd get one. Actually, in my 20, and I hadn't said anything about this, in my 25 years in SWAT, when the mounted unit went full-time, from volunteer to full-time, and it went, it located itself into SWAT, I mean, in the, in the Metro. Mountain unit is now in the Metro. I left SWAT. I was there for seven years. I left SWAT, and I went over and rode horses. I was a mountain unit police officer for about uh, nine, nine months. And that's about the same time when I said, I miss my SWAT stuff, and I went back into SWAT. Never before had anybody <laughs> left SWAT and ever come back into SWAT. So how tough of a decision was that then to leave SWAT? I mean, obviously you loved horses, and that's kind of that's actually where I was headed with this. I wanted to see what you did, you know, with the mounted units. But uh, did they kind of look at you like, yeah, here you come crawling back to us, yeah. wanting to be back on SWAT again? Well, yeah, because, you know, like I said, there are there's one lieutenant and six sergeants. And when I had mentioned to them that I wanted to come back, they just kind of scratched their heads. 
One of the sergeants did not want me back because he said I showed a disloyalty to the unit by leaving. Um, at the time I was gone for the nine months, SWAT had started a selection program. So you had a one week of selection where you were, for one week, you're shooting, you're moving, you're, you're doing a number of things. And that's what they put the new selectees through that were trying to get into SWAT. So I told him I wanted to come back. Uh, the um, one sergeant was the only uh, one that said no. The other five said, sure. They said, but do we put him through the selection process? And the lieutenant said, no. We know what he can do and we know what he can't do. We'll bring him in. But you're going to do a little bit of time like penance in one of the other platoons. Oh, yeah. oh, so yeah. I had to sit in one of the other platoons that was the furthest drive from my house. Oh, here comes the punishment. So I had to be in C <laughs> platoon, which was I drive downtown every day from where I'm at in Ventura County, all the way down to downtown. And I was down, I was in that platoon for only for a couple months. And then I, and then I came back in. Yeah. And then I came back in. How long's the drive? Oh, it was 30 miles, 35 miles. That's not bad. Oh yeah. But, but in LA traffic, that's what, two days? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it took me a couple days to get down there and a couple days to get back. Oh, there, there you go. And then, you know, that's what they used to do with other folks, too. Uh, if you wanted to, I know, talking to a friend of mine, retired as a lieutenant with NYPD, and uh, when they wanted to make it tough for people or change you, they would assign you to a precinct that was like over the river, through the woods. You would quit after a month. And, 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 the, and the caveat to all of this is that Metro officers take their cars home. You could, I couldn't take my car home. I had to drive my own car. Uh, oh, so after you groveled and you came back and you did your penance, you said, please let me back on SWAT. They let you back on SWAT, yeah. right? After it's those the best two thing months I ever of did. penance, you were in purgatory, right? Yeah. So you, you atone for your sins. Um, and so now that leads us back up to then. So that's, we kind of took a roundabout, but the horse story was so interesting because you start off your day taking care of the horses. I mean, these are beautiful animals and you're thinking, ah, today's a great day. We're going for a run because you're training for a big run, right? And it's just another day, you know, it's just another day in, in what we do. Um, I, I'm out the door. We start our day at 10 o'clock in the morning but we were going in at nine o'clock to get ready for a, um, a relay race, a department relay race. And myself, I get up there, drop my partner off. He's in a firearms instructor, drop him off at the Academy range. And I come down closer to where the gym is, park my car, get out, have my, uh, my running stuff on. I meet up with two other guys, uh, Steve and, um, Pete. And we're getting ready to go for a long run. About that same time, and, and this is a time period where our plane cars no longer existed. We had mark cars. We had black well, and whites. And this is, and this is, let's just talk about that real quick too, because I didn't, I didn't believe this. I read it for the first time actually in a, in a Michael Connolly novel about Harry Bosch, but they talk about painting all the detective cars and some of the other cars to put the perception that there's more cars on the road. So now you're driving a previously unmarked car that has now been painted black and white. Correct. We but is still it a slick had, top? We had this, I'm sorry? It's a sli was it a slick top, no bars? Slick no top, lights? no bars on top, no numbers on it. 
we had only the city seal on the side and that was it. There were no numbers on the back of the trunk, no numbers on top of the car. So if you were in a helicopter, you'd see it's a black and white, but you had no idea where we were from or what division we were assigned to or what area we were working. But we were still right. Mark Carr. <laughs> you know, from the ground, yeah. you look at us and we're a Mark Carr. Speaking of politicians as, as chiefs now, right? Because it's all about managing perception. It's not about results. It's about managing perception. Well, the perception that was given to the city without mentioning the chief's name, unless you want me to. Um, Dude, if you don't think this is going to affect your paycheck, I, I don't care. Well, Willie, you, you Williams, Willie Williams came in to take Daryl Gates's place. He was the first outside chief that we ever had. And he came in and first thing he said that he was going to do was going to put more police cars on the street. I will put more police cars on the street. And he did that. No more police officers. But what he did was he took all the plane cars that you don't notice on a normal everyday basis. All the Crown Vicks that we were driving at that time. And uh, painted them black and white. Put the city seal on the side. Well, he didn't put any more cars on the street. He just painted more cars. He didn't have more police to make officers. Look. You had... You, you had the perception, smoke and mirrors. The same number of people in cars. Yep. That you had more police because now you're seeing more cars. It was a political move. So here you are in your new fancy black and white. <laughs> you're out at the, you know, you're out in the training. You know, you've just made yourself a marked target too because now people look at it and go, yo, man, that's 5-0. You know, look at, you can tell now because there are no more unmarked cars. Well, stop and think about it because like I said earlier, Metro, including SWAT, used to do a lot of stakeouts. We could put a plane car pretty much anywhere we wanted and nobody would know it. But now you have a black and white and that's taken that element of concealment away from us. Yeah, just put a sign out to say, nothing to see here, folks. Move along. This is not an <laughs> unmarked cop car. <laughs> these, aren't, these aren't the people you're looking for. These are not the droids you're looking for. You know, exactly. Don't do your Jedi mind trick stuff. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so you go out to the range, like you say, you drop people off, and then so you start, you get ready to start doing your run, and but things change uh, pretty quickly. Our uh, police radios at that time, we did not have a police scanner. The police radio was to our office or to Metropolitan Division, the division itself, and inside the division, as part of the administrative platoon would be uh, an officer that works like a dispatcher, uh, works the desk and works the, uh, com the computers and works the, uh, the radios. And what they would do is their whole job, because we do not get a call for service, we don't have somebody calling up and saying, hey, my neighbor's blocking my driveway and has been there for the last three days. You know, we get the canine call outs, we get the SWAT call outs, Divisions that call us in and say, hey, we need uh, Metro or SWAT or canines help. Those are the calls we would get in. So when, when Donnie was driving into the academy, he had gotten word from Metropolitan Division that there was a shooting that was happening in North Hollywood. Unknown location. It was a big shootout in North Hollywood. And he came driving in like a, like a crazy man, like he always drives like a crazy man, and uh, our sergeant at the time, who's now a chief in other places, he, um, he basically told the three of us to uh, jump in our police cars. We had our, our individual police cars because our partners were somewhere else. None of the four of us 
We train together, the four of us, which is so important, but none of the four of us were partners with each other. So you have four individual SWAT cops jumping into four individual black and whites, driving like a bat out of hell to uh, North Hollywood, which was um, about 18 miles away from the police academy. But let's let's talk about your cars, the whole setup, too, because this is going to be important for later. So because you had take-home cars, because you'd done your penance, and now you actually have a take-home car now, you have an assigned car, what, what do you, I mean, you, you could get called out at any time, so all of your stuff is in there, right? Everything that you're going to need to go to go uh, operational. Everything in, all the officers in Metro, whether you were in A platoon, B platoon, didn't matter, whatever platoon you were in, you had your equipment in the trunk of the car. So that if all of a sudden there was a civil unrest, one of the other platoons, not SWAT, but there was civil unrest that all of a sudden developed. You could get a hold of whatever Metro cars are working that day, send them down to a command post, suit up, and off they go. SWAT is a little bit more intense than that because now we have all of our weapons. Each officer has an assault rifle. Each officer has um, probably less lethal. Each officer has uh, all of his equipment that is, uh, is assigned to him. And, and let me back up to, to the 1984 Olympics. After the 84 Olympics, we got a budget as a result of the 84 Olympics. So we had, now we had weapons that were, that were mainstream, that were good, high-quality HK, uh, MP5s, uh, HK um, uh, sniper rifles. And we had all the equipment that, was, uh, that we desperately needed. And that plays into this in a little bit. Let's make a distinction there too, because you talked earlier about CQB close quarters combat, um, and but some of the some of the weapons are designed for CQB, like the MP5, right? But then you need to have the, the rifles. What kind of uh, what kind of other than the sniper rifle? What kind of what was your high? What was your uh, semi-automatic or were they automatic weapons? Well, it depended upon it depended upon um, who you were as far as what your position was within the team. For myself, I had a shotgun because I was a shotgunner. So I had a shotgun, uh, which was a Benelli shotgun, which was an automatic shotgun. You didn't have a. Oh, those were sweet. Yeah, you yeah. didn't. You didn't have to. Uh, you didn't have a pump action. So as fast as you can pull the trigger, as fast as the rounds come out. So I had a shotgun. I had an assault rifle, which was an M16. I had. Uh, two uh, different 45s, one for my uniform, one for my tactical that had a tactical light on it. Uh, if there was a sniper, if my partner was a sniper, which he was, there would be a sniper rifle in a Pelican case in the back. He would have the same weapons that I did. He would have all the same weapons. He would just have an extra, an extra rifle. Extra rifle in there. And what'd you carry for body armor? For uh, everyday body armor was just the standard uh, level three, and actually the uh, same for uh, for our tack vests. Our tack vests was uh, just was just level three. If the suspects would have shot at us and hit us, it would have gone through us like a hot knife through butter. It would not stop. We have the capability. Our our tack vests do have pouches capability of putting a ceramic plate in that would stop a would stop a high-powered rifle, but this incident was happening so rapidly uh, 
that we didn't have the time to be able to do that. To go get them. But those ceramic plates aren't light either. No, I mean, they're not. You know, you put, the, you put those things on, it, I mean, it can significantly weigh you down, inhibit your freedom of movement and some of the things that you can do. But on the other hand, hey, it's nice if you're going to take around. I'd rather have the ceramic plate take around than the level three, uh, 3A. You know, they've got all the different levels now. But uh, so you guys are hopping in your car. You're all hauling ass down there. What did? When was the first indication that it was a bank robbery and not just a huge shootout? Did you know that on the way down, or did you learn that when you got there? I'll never forget the the broadcast that our sergeant put out. We're we're traveling at a high rate of speed, bumper to bumper traffic, going our our eighteen miles from the academy to to the bank, and our sergeant gets on the air and he says the Shooting is at a Bank of America. It, these are the suspects we were looking for. They're heavily armed. They have body armor on. And the one thing that he said that I'll always remember, and that's as, as police officers, we don't like to hear, we don't like to hear that there's an officer down. I don't care if it's a motor officer that dropped his bike or, or what it is. We don't like hearing about a, a motor officer down or an off-duty officer that gets in an accident or, or anything like that. And he put out that these are, these are the officers, these are the bad guys that we're looking for, and there are five to seven officers down. And, and right away, I'm thinking that this is, a, this is the major call-up. This is a big one. This isn't just a, a barricade suspect that doesn't want to come out of his house. There's a number of rounds being fired. There's officers that are, are shot. He didn't say whether they were killed. He just said there are five to seven officers down. And here, here we are going to try and solve the problem. Yeah, and, and so you had to drive like 18 miles, you said. Now, L.A. traffic, it's, you know, it's infamous for how bad it can be. How in the world do you get through that traffic trying to get there, knowing you got brother officers needing you as quickly as you can get there? We have a special lane that's called the Metro Lane, which is actually the lane that's between the K rails <laughs> yep. and yep. the and the traffic lane, and it's we call it that because Metro you, us Metropolitan Division officers that's the lane we use, and yeah. we're doing about ninety miles an hour down that lane, and I tell you what, that was scary by itself. I can't imagine because you still don't have the light bars. You probably got lights in the grill or, or wigwag headlights. We had lights that we would actually take and put on our dash. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, no lights in the grills. We weren't that lucky. So that, that really stuck in my mind. And, and right away you start thinking about, he then puts out, the sergeant then puts out, I need officers. I need you guys to start doing officer rescues get some eyes on where the suspect's at, uh, give us an update. We, we were shorthanded that day. Shorthanded for us means that we only have 12 officers, 12 SWAT cops to handle the whole city there on that day. Wow. And, and as we're going down there, you're thinking, I'm thinking, is are you going to make it through this? This is far different than what we had planned on our stakeouts that we would watch them, we'd bear to follow them to their house. We'd do a barricade on them. Far different from that. Now we're going into a, now we're going into a shooting and we're not the ones that are starting it. We're going into the middle of it. 
So where did you guys get geared up at? Was that before you hopped in the car? Did you have to wait to get geared up until you got somewhere? Because, you know, at some point you got, you, you got vests, got to get your weapons. So at, w- at what point do you guys gear up? I was able to put my utilities on there. Steve only got uh, his utility top on. He had shorts on. Donnie had, uh, had his utilities on, and I, Pete got his on real quick before we headed out. Hey players, man, if you thought that was good, wait till part two and the rest of the story. Rick Massa does a marvelous job telling you and giving you the inside view of what it was like to be involved in the biggest, most epic shootout in law enforcement history. We've also got a lot of other good stuff coming up. So tell one, share one. Tell one friend about Game of Crimes and share one episode with them. Give them the gift of Game of Crimes this holiday season. Hey, also follow us on the socials at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Go visit our webpage, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot of good stuff over there, including pictures from the North Hollywood Bank shootout, stuff that you probably haven't seen anywhere else, plus a 17-minute video that just encapsulates everything that went on that day. Man, this is great stuff. So we'll see you on part two. And again, thank you for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes. (laughs) 